line of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Alright, uh, the logic of this chapter all holds together, so we may read further than that, but let, let's stop there for now and talk about Melchizedek. Um, it may be that the book of Hebrews is written early enough that there is no split between Judaism and Christianity. It may be that it is written to Jerusalem. All this speculative and uh, it would be the opinion of some that that's the case. And so if the, the readers are in close proximity to the temple and its sacrifices, it may be that they've already made the logical leap that the writer of Hebrews is making here, and that is saying, oh, well, the temple is pointing to you know, the, the sacrifice of Christ, and the, high, the true high priest is Christ. Um, so if the, the, and it seems likely, given the focus in Hebrews, that it, the temple sacrifices are still up and running, and that they're, you know, there they're in, is in the book no clear reference to Judaism and Christianity. And if you look at Acts, you know, passages in Acts like Acts 13, you see Paul and, you know, Paul continually going into the synagogues, Paul offering a sacrifice in the temple. Uh, and so the break with Judaism is a slow process. It may be even with the book of Romans that we're still in the midst of that separation between Jews and Gentiles, or, or between Judaism and Christianity, rather. Um, so, the argument of Hebrews is to, you know, you could think of it, they're pointing at a present tense Judaism, present tense temple with all of its sacrifices. And the writer in 930 references, he talks about, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And so the writer may be then describing or arguing, well, the time of reformation is now. It's not that there's a break with Judaism, but here is the fulfillment of Judaism. It's not a, oh, you have to stop being a Jew and become a Christian. Uh, it's that you're going to be a follower of Jesus and in the process be true to the Jewish temple and all that it represents. Uh, so I think that may get at what he's doing with the figure of Melchizedek. Uh, that Melchizedek precedes Abraham Abraham, is Abraham a Jew? Well, no, he's not even really a Jew because he's the father of the Jews. But in the loins of Abraham is the Levitical priesthood and all of Judaism that is going to result as, you know, coming from Abraham. And so you know the story that, that uh, a couple, of the, that the kings have invaded and Sodom and Gomorrah have been defeated and Abraham goes out and he conquers these kings and brings back his own nephew, Lot. And he, as he's coming back, this figure who we know nothing about, other than this passage in, in Genesis and the passage in Psalms, comes out and offers 
or Abraham offers him a tithe, and Melchizedek gives him a blessing. Um, the way that this has always been read up until uh, the Middle Ages is that it was a type or typologically. That is, that uh, whether, you know, whatever the historic personage of Melchizedek might have been, the way that it has been read is that Melchizedek is a shadow of the greater reality, which is Christ. Um, I won't say much more than that, but if you're interested in the figure of Melchizedek, with the coming of the Middle Ages, there's all sorts of speculation. But I th I'm going to go with the traditional reading that whoever this guy is, his significance is in his foreshadowing uh, to Christ, or foreshadowing of Christ, and uh, the way the way that he's functioning in Hebrews and functioning in, I think, for the early Christians, is in a kind of literary fashion. That is, that he's without mother and father as far as the text is concerned. Uh, he's without beginning or end liter in, in terms of the literature. In other words, we don't... Uh, it, it probably is not the case that he literally doesn't have a mother and father. But that like the Levitical priests, that they have to know their genealogy. Literally, you had to know who your parents were, and you know, and each priest then it would be recorded. So none of this is recorded, and so even the idea that Melchizedek is a priest forever, the idea that there's no record of his death, and that is the way that the Psalm is going to reference Melchizedek, that the promise you know, in the psalm is that you will be a priest forever uh, after the order of Melchizedek. And so the Hebrew writer picks up on this and uh, reads it uh, as a fulfillment of that psalm. So, uh, and it's only in Hebrews that Jesus is designated a priest. Uh, if this passage or these passages about Jesus being a priest weren't in Hebrews, we would not have this concept. Which is, this is a fairly significant concept. Um, and he brings together then that God's Son is our priest. Um, Melchizedek, we, we've run into this uh, already in uh, chapter 2. Uh, we, you know, is I guess you before I go on to that, you could say, well, there are other places where Jesus seems to function as a priest. You know, there's the high priestly prayer, but we've given that prayer that name. I think it's a legitimate name. It's just not there in the text, and it is an intercessory prayer in which Jesus, you know, is praying for himself, for his disciples, and for those who will come and. Maybe that is a kind of foreshadowing of the high priestly work that he does in the Holy of Holies. But it's really, but it's only in Hebrews that he's designated a priest or a high priest. And it occurs first in 2.17, we've already run into it, he had to be made like his brethren, and he suffered, so he's tempted and a suffering high priest. Uh, 
And the argument that's coming, in other words, the significance of Jesus being a high priest is that, and I think this is already the implication, is that his brethren are going to be priests. That is, that there are that all who are his brethren, and this will this will come up in chapter ten, are going to be serving like the Levitical priests. The imagery is still there of the Levitical priests, but now Christians are serving in the role of the Levitical priests. So it's a very similar to the passage in Peter that talks about the priesthood of all believers. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews, the significance of Jesus being high priest is, well, we're all his fellow priests. And we all then, as Paul will say, are carrying out the redemption, the reconciliation uh, that Christ then uh, inaugurated. Uh in Hebrews 3 is another reference that he's already referenced Christ. Therefore, my holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. You get a kind of feeling for this idea that we're all partakers. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed. I'm going to read this all because I think it's significant. As Moses was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And then it goes on, you know, just as the builder uh, of the house has more honor than the house. So the picture here is of the priesthood of Jesus occurring. And then he goes on to say, and you are his temple. So our calling, which we partake of in and through Christ, pertains to the fulfillment of of both the priesthood of Moses and I think you could the implication is of the rulership of Moses that Moses is kind of this king priest figure um, God is the creator of the cosmos and we've talked about this this imagery is there in John I think it's there in Hebrews that the creation itself the cosmos itself is the temple that is the, the habitation of the dwelling place of God in which we serve. Uh, specifically in this verse, he says, we are his temple, and we are to act as the medium of bringing God's presence into the lives of others. And as Paul will talk in Romans 8, that you know, the creation itself awaits for the revealing of the sons of God, so that all of uh, creation then is groaning and travail, awaiting for this appearing. The other places in chapter four, I did. I, I'm making references here. I'm hoping you get in, get in the big picture. The temple is the cosmos. The priesthood that Jesus is serving is served in this cosmos, mediating the presence of God to creation. Chapter 4, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We've discussed this. The idea is not that he's removed from us spatially, but that he's entered into the presence of God on our, our behalf and enables us to enter the presence of God. And he's going to say that literally, that you too then can enter in to the holy place like a priest would, that we now have access, you know, he's already said it, that the anchor is 
fastened behind the curtain that is that we have access to the Holy of Holies. And then in chapter 5, he says, being designated by God as a high priest according to, that was where he first referenced it. And then he stopped himself, said, now I know I'm talking about hard stuff here. I think the rest of the book, and many people that agree with the writer, the book of Hebrews is a hard book. And it's going to, this concept is a difficult concept, not just intellectually, but I think in every other way that we are called to be priests. We're called to uh, be, he says, you know, you people should be teachers. I think that is a picture that he's calling, he's saying the Christians are the ones who are functioning as, you know, the reality that the Levitical priesthood only pointed to. He says you ought to be able to discern good and evil, and you're not able to do that yet. We ought to be able to endure suffering with joy and gladness. You know, all the, this is the encouragement or the exhortation that, Many think Hebrews is actually a kind of written sermon. Uh, And then in this passage, uh, that Jesus is high priest, and the argument is, he says several things, but I think the key thing is he's the high priest on the basis of an indestructible life. I've been arguing this throughout, uh, that... uh, you know, he says, this is, if another priest arises according to the like of Melchizedek, who has become such as not on the basis of, of physical requirement, it says you are a priest forever, uh, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And so the, what is the perfection? I've been saying, well, the perfection is the resurrection. The Levitical priesthood was not perfect because the priest died. Uh, it needed to be repeated again and again, but this priesthood is forever. Uh, it does not, you know, the Levitical priesthood, uh, it, the weakness that keeps it being from per- perfected uh, is that it, you know, that they died and literally it was had to be recorded that they about the 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 finitude of the people and the finitude of the nature of the priesthood that they exercised uh and you know the passage from Jeremiah talks about this that there will be a time when the covenant will be changed up and the law will be written on your heart uh verse 16 it uh, the reference is to this I'm quoting from William Lane uh, is to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus suffered death. He was exposed to destruction. So there's repeated reference to the cross of Christ. It's not saying he didn't die. It's not saying that he, but he uh, describes Jesus as possessing an indestructible life. So he doesn't mean that he never died. He means that he died and that death was unable to hold him. It was a death followed by resurrection. And this is the basis upon which Jesus is high priest. This is the meaning of the words of, you know, you are a priest forever just like Melchizedek. Because he attained an eternal priesthood then in and through the passage through death to resurrection. Uh, This is very similar to what Paul says, you know, that it's 
that on the basis of his resurrection, we have redemption. In 8.3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The question is, what does Jesus offer? And I think, you know, this, this actually comes out to the difference between many of the various denominations and sects. But I think actually you can unify, there's a kind of understanding here that Christ himself is the one that is offered. That is his life, his death, the living Christ. And it's today can be repeat that is this can be repeated. He's continually available. It takes place, and this is the significance that it's above the heavens. It takes place in the heavenly realm. It's not bound by time. It's always today. It can be present in history because of Christ's humanity, but his humanity makes such an offering always possible. I won't spell out the various controversies that have flowed out of communion and the Eucharist, but actually that the idea here is that it, it kind of undoes a lot of those controversies. Uh, the passage I was referring to earlier, Romans 1, he was declared the Son of God with, the pow- with power by the resurrection from the dead. Uh, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The picture is through the power of his resurrection. So the significance of Easter is that it's at Easter that Christ is enabled to be our great high priest. He, he is alive. He's always living to do his priestly service on behalf of his people. He has been appointed to an eternal priesthood. He is an effective priest because he possesses a unique quality of eternal life. So if you're not getting why I'm saying this with emphasis, is because I'm shifting the emphasis. Often we think of his death and the cross as the place that he's exercising. You know, that's the main thing that's being offered. But actually all of the language here is dependent upon uh, the resu- the, that the priesthood is ac- exercised on the basis of the resurrection. Uh Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is Jeremiah. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother. The picture in Jeremiah, I think, is being worked out here in Hebrews that every man is a priest, that no man has the need. That is, every Christian is a priest. No man has the need of someone else to mediate to him uh, as they did in the temple. Uh, because each is called then to be a priest to, you know, uh, creation or the cosmos. And since Jesus exercised an eternal and final priesthood, he's able, the writer says in 23 to 25, to mediate an eternal and final salvation. So, uh, his is a permanent priesthood where uh, he is able to say the language here is you know 
He saves absolutely those who approach God through him. He is able to approach the Father on behalf of his people. Uh, so there's an unlimited effectiveness that he's acting out on behalf of his people. The other thing that's interesting here, of course, Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. He's both priest and king. Um, the new and final priesthood is, you know, the, the political, the religious, the all of these things are enfolded into the person and work of Christ. I think that that is reflected then in the kingdom that he's established and the nature of the priesthood that we are to exercise. The writer, again, he's used this already, but he, the language of God swearing an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Why is Jesus a priest? Why is Melchizedek a priest? Because he's called by God. And the psalm, of course, he's referencing uh, is, is the place in which this promise is given. And then he says that he traces the meaning of this, that he's characterized, Melchizedek is characterized by two things. Peace. Seems like knowing Jesus should have something to do with peace and righteousness. Uh, and, of course, the, it's over and against the usual way that political and religious power exercise, you know, power and goodness. or, you know, uh, So he is a priest who is also a king of righteousness and peace. And the city over which he reigns is a place of peace. His kingship is in and through peace. Um, so it, there, the language here, you know, he had already talked about a word made certain by the promise of God. Um, let me summarize then. There's three key elements. Christ, first, Christ is perfect. He's holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners. Why is this so important that Christ is perfect? Well, because his entry, you know, the, the picture is, that he's raised from the dead. We talked about this last time. This is this is a uh, cause and effect that we wouldn't necessarily put together. That the sinless one is resurrected because resurrection is a sign either of the forgiveness of sin or the the absence of sin. And so, for a Jew, the resurrection signals forgiveness or the uh, access to God because sin is is not present. Um, and the idea that he's higher than the heavens. You know, I don't think it's a spatial or horizontal or, or rather vertical so much uh, as the idea that he has a, you know, God's transcendence is not a spatial transcendence. Uh, it's a moral transcendence. It's his goodness then uh, is absent for, from us because of our own sinfulness. The other thing he contrasts with other priests and other sacrifices who they have to offer sacrifices, or they, the other priests have to offer sacrifices for themselves. Uh, that this priest then is acting only on the behalf of others. 
I think the language here, you know, vicarious sacrifice, you know, the way that has usually been understood, I think, is is not correct. But is Jesus acting vicariously? Yeah, I think he is. He's acting on our behalf. There's nothing. But that vicariousness, then, is a continual vicariousness. He's continually acting on our behalf. And the third thing, Hebrews contrasts the source of these two priesthood. The law founds the Levitical priesthood. Uh, it is good, but it is a remedy for weakness. The priesthood and its sacrifices share in the weakness. You know, this is Paul's argument. The, the law is not an end in itself. That Abraham's promise and his faith precedes the law. The writer of Hebrews is doing something similar with Melchizedek. Everything's being, you know, when we say law, that's inclusive of the temple, the sacrifices. That's all being changed up. Uh, They have, uh, these things then were repeated, but Christ's priesthood and sacrifice is on the basis of an oath. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Just to give you, that's my last thought here, other than to point us ahead, that where this is taking us is, you know, like 1021, that we are encouraged to approach the house of God with a true heart, having our our hearts sprinkled from a bad conscience. The imagery there is, that's, that's pointing to the Levitical imagery of the priests having themselves been cleansed, that they might enter into the holy place or the holy of holies. So I think it's a kind of echoing of that ceremonial cleansing made a reality in the case of our priesthood. And so he's going to move from Christ as high priest to the priesthood of all believers. That we have confidence, he'll say, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. You know, who enters the holy place? Well, the priests do. Uh, And that's all of us. We have a great high priest over the house of God. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, he says in 13.10, have no right to eat. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of Question, comment to my brief introduction. Oh. Yeah. Um, working on how to phrase this still. How do the roles of the, the high priest and um, all of the kingdom... Uh, how does the high priest and the kingdom relate inside of a Jewish understanding? And what is Jesus as the resurrected um, king-priest mean in relation to that? Well, I think the the reference, you know, uh, that David actually wanted to build the temple and God said, well, you can't. And the the psalm may be a kind of reference to the the fulfillment (laughs) of the promise given to David um that and, and all of this as a kind of foreshadowing of course of who Christ is 
the the picture then of uh, Melchizedek is then I think in enveloping and and I it, that's the significance here I think that if the temple's still up and running I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is well that's fine you know there, there's nothing wrong with any of that we're not going to you know you don't even need to stop doing that but understand the reality is to be found in Christ so Christianity is not supersessionism it's not a displacement of Judaism and it never needed you know historically it in fact didn't act that way the Jews many of the priests it said became Christians I don't know what they did about their priestly duties but of course the reality is that their priestly duties are fulfilled in their having met Christ did I did I get your question or not um Say it again. You no, you did address it. Um, it was a different route than what I was expecting, but I'm I'm like back on how does high priest and kingdom even relate to each other like Exodus? Um, but what you said made a lot of sense as well. It's um, I'm just trying to there in my in my brain noggin there are a lot there's a lot of kingdom language as well as a lot of high priest language. That when you're reading and you're looking and you're thinking, all right, how, how does this relate to kingdom inside of a Jewish sense? There's actually a lot of things that stand out. Um, and so I'm trying to see how is the writer connecting those two themes and then just inside of like a Jewish framework. Like if I were a Jew pre-Christ, how would they understand these two as connected? Um, and then... Jesus and and resurrected ascended Jesus um, in a, a letter sent to people within his kingdom how then do we interact with with that from that understanding so if you yeah the, the your question is a wonderful question and I think it's it points it it points to a kind of failure in a lot of theology to bring together the cross and the kingdom or the resurrection and the kingdom you know, how, what is happening on the cross? Well, Jesus is confronted by the, the kingdoms, the principalities and powers of the world, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of Israel. They're the ones who put him on the cross. And the cross then, is the picture is that he, he's uh, confronting the work of Satan on the cross. That, you know, John pictures, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so the cross and... The, the resurrection of Christ is then the defeat of the kingdoms of this world and the establishment then of an alternative kingdom. So the sacrifice of Christ is the establishment of a kingdom on the basis of a different order. This resurrection kingdom does not establish itself through death but through the defeat of death. Every other kingdom establishes itself through violence and death and putting people on crosses. This kingdom establishes itself having been, you know, Christ calls us all to take up our cross and follow him because that's the way we establish this kingdom. And so the sacrifice, you know, if you want to go back to the Jewish sacrifices, 
what I've argued is that the, the, the sacrifice of atonement was not a sacrifice in which death is presented to God, but the sacrifice of atonement is a sacrifice in, of a life dedicated to God, a precursor or pointer to then of the reality of the kingdom life that we would live out in the sacrificial lifestyle we're called to as followers of Christ. So the kingdom and the cross go together. What I just said I think is very simple. But unfortunately what is missed in most theology is those two ideas are never brought together. We we talk about atonement and the cross and all of that and that is often removed from the kingdom and the church. And so it's never brought together what we're supposed to be doing because salvation is kind of this privatized, you know, individualized thing that happens when you accept Jesus into your heart. Well, if that's what it's all about, well, what about the kingdom? And so what we need to do is bring the two together. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. So if I can trace your logic with the, the high priest side of that, you're connecting cross with sacrifice and sacrifice with high priest, and that's how kingdom and uh, high priesthood or kingdom and cross are brought together? Yeah. Yeah, that here's the here is the true high priest, here's the true sacrifice. Are high priest and sacrifice synonymous? In Christ, they've become enfolded into one person. And, and that, that was what, actually, I think that in the original, that was what it was meant to be. You know, what were the sacrifices all about? Originally, what was called for is the sacrifice of Isaac, right? But Isaac is a type of Christ. The priest, the, the Levitical sacrifices in the temple and in the tabernacle are actually a reenactment or a pointer back to what didn't happen to Isaac and what will happen to Christ. And so Isaac is a type of Christ that the Levitical priests always, you know, it's an outflowing of that sacrifice that did not occur. And they understand that it still has not occurred. That here is a life completely dedicated to God. That was the picture of what Abraham was doing with Isaac. That's a, that's a, that is a, uh, I think that is, well, I think it's the right understanding, obviously, (laughs) but that may not be the way that we've all heard that. We may have heard, heard that as a kind of, you know, I think the way we read the Old Testament very often is from a pagan Christianity that reads these Old Testament sacrifices as a kind of pagan sacrifices, and we just get a lot more paganism and we call it Christianity. What I've just described is an undoing of all that. While I agree that in Jesus, the what you said I actually agree with. Um, oh, that's good to know. So I want to say that because what I'm going to, to say next is not criticism, but I don't know another way of phrasing it. It might sound like criticism. Um, I don't know if high priest means sacrifice, though, because they are distinct from one another within um, the sense that a Jewish high priest isn't going on the altar and dying on it. 
um, Jesus does as a sacrifice, but that's him fulfilling a role of sacrifice. When you're looking at high priest, you're looking at post-resurrection, a resurrected sacrifice, if you will. Um, but the, the high priest is the one who intercedes and he fulfills a distinct uh, role in that. Um, and Jesus says that allows us to be the priesthood. I'm, I'm curious about how that role, resurrected high priest, um, is connected with the establishment of just a, a kingdom. Um, and this is something I'm probably just going to have to work out on my own, or we can talk about later, because I just don't want to dominate the whole conversation. Here. Well, no, the, the, the picture of the, the resurrection power, which I didn't do tonight, but you know uh, uh, the thing that's happening in the book of Hebrews is the, the work of the Holy Spirit is connected to the power of the resurrection, and it's that is the nature of this kingdom that you know holds it's held together then. Uh, in and through the work of this high priest. It was always the case that the animal sac God never wanted the blood of bulls and goats, Jeremiah says. Uh, the blood of bulls and goats represented something. Mm -hmm. They represented human lives dedicated to God. God didn't want people to slay their children on an altar but he wanted people to take up crosses and dedicate them, their lives completely to him. And that constitutes an alternative kingdom. By the way, I believe what is being described here is iner inherently a kingdom based upon not putting people on crosses, but taking up crosses. That is, it's a kingdom. Of, it's a peaceable kingdom. He is the kingdom you know, it, he is called the king of peace, even in reference to Melchizedek. Uh, so the, the, the peaceable kingdom, the peaceableness of it, the righteousness of it, uh, I think is inherent in the sacrificial love that constitutes this kingdom. So it's a kingdom like no other. It's a kingdom that makes no sense according to the logic of this world. It's a kingdom for fools and idiots according to the logic of this world because they'll just wipe you out if they so choose. But that's what we've signed up for is to stand back and let them slaughter us should it come to that. But even if it doesn't come to that, to live lives that are of a sacrificial nature that do not presume then to take up the way that power is exercised in the kingdoms of this world. So what I'm describing is a continual, Jesus is a continual high priest in a kingdom that is presently being in, you know, we're in the midst of this thing. We're to be doing it now. And that's the language of Hebrews today. Uh, is is the, the picture. So, and I'm saying that in in contradistinction to an understanding that you know the various millennial theories that have the millennial kingdom somewhere else. No, this is it. This is the millennium. We've entered into the breaking in 
of this alternative kingdom into the world. This is apocalypse now. That uh, sometimes it doesn't, you know, the, the weakness of this thing seems pitiful sometimes, but it always has seemed that way. And yet that's the way that God's transforming the world. Shall we read? Sharon, you got the first one there. We just do through ten. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I sat and practiced the name of the king that uh, he was with, and I forgot his name now, but does anybody remember the king that... Oh, good, so I don't have to say it again. Uh, and But anyway, uh, the, the reference is to Genesis. That's the only... We really know nothing. The speculation is that he's the king of Salem, maybe Jerusalem. He's the priest king of Jerusalem. Uh, Some think he may be a descendant of one of the sons of Noah. All speculation. All sorts of speculation about Melchizedek. I don't think he's an angelic figure. I think he's a historical person. Uh, but he's the the point here is not Melchizedek so much as the fulfillment of who Melchizedek is in Christ. And then, Dave, you want to do verse two and is uh, give us a full sentence there? Yeah, verse two. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. Um, I think that's significant. That Normally you don't put kings together with peace. Uh, but here is one who attains peace. Here is one. And... All that is in Abraham, all that's in Israel, all that's in the temple, the writer is saying, you know, is represented because the Levitical priests are, you know, in the loins of Abraham. They then offer tithe to Melchizedek, meaning the inferior offers tithe to the superior. Whatever Melchizedek is, he is over, he, he is privileged over. Melchizedek. Again, then, pointing to Christ. But I think also pointing to, even historically, the relative situation of Israel. Israel, I think, they they always understood uh, that the Messiah, the priest-king, that they always had this understanding of the return of Yahweh. It didn't work out, you know, all of these figures are enfolded into the Messiah, the Christ, the return of Yahweh, into one person. Uh, And I don't think they expected that. But they expected something to fulfill. In other words, they never thought of what Israel was as an end in and of, of itself. 
as you know, Zizek says about the Egyptians, that the mystery of the Egyptians was a mystery to the Egyptians. The mystery of Israel was a mystery to the Israelites. They didn't understand what what that how that mystery would unfold, but they knew that the end of it was not there to be found in the temple and priests and sacrifices. All right, uh, Rachel, you want to read? Uh, Three. He is without father or mother or, gen or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And he's combining the language here of Son of God with priest. Uh, again, this is the only place in Scripture that you find these two things fused. And he makes a point. He says he, he doesn't have. There's no genealogy for Melchizedek. And there's no genealogy. In other words, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, wrong tribe, because the, uh, the priest did not come from the tribe of Judah. He is, in terms of the liter literature, in terms of the record, without beginning or end, he's he, an eternal priest. So, it, I, you know, there is a historicity to this, Melchizedek, but the historicity is actually fulfilled in the person of Christ. It's a historical thing that's being referenced in both instances, that Christ has invaded history and his priesthood is exercised, and though it is in heaven, that heaven is not removed from the historical realm. And then, uh, Jake, you want to do verse... Four and, mm -hmm. Yeah, four. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Go ahead and do five. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. And so it is, it, the argument is worked out here that... Uh, he is a priest, you know, the Levites would normally receive the, the tenth, but Melchizedek receives the tenth. And so it's like the Levites, the priest of the priests, uh, pointing backward, but of course pointing forward. That in the history of Israel, this is kind of your question, Alec, you know, how are the Jews going to work this thing out? And what the writers of the New Testament are doing, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's trying to show through the text that they would count as authoritative how Christ fits into this, how Christ works this out. You want to do the next finale? Go ahead and give us a couple verses. Go ahead and read to the end. Okay. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abram. Because when Melchizedek met Abram, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And, you know, this is just the first half of the chapter. We didn't do the second half, but we'll stop there. But the second half, then, goes on to finish the argument to say that the significance of this is to be found in 
a new order of priests, that always within Israel there were two orders of priests. There was the order of Melchizedek, which is fulfilled in Jesus, and there's the Levitical priesthood that is simply an interim. You know, Jesus, Melchizedek is the first, and Jesus is the, the last priest, and the Levitical priesthood is simply the interim between those two. So where does Israel fit? Israel is sort of like, you know, this is Paul's argument about the law. The law is a tutor, a guide, taking us from one place to the other. And what the law is, it includes all the temple and its cultists. All right, let's stop here. Any questions or comments? Argument.